0: It has been quite some time since uh, we were together, and uh, it's good to be back. It's, uh, I was going to say it's a little warmer here, but uh, this week, it's a little bit weird. I'm not sure what's going on. Uh, it's not nearly as uh, hot as uh, normally would be this time of year. I'll take it. We'll, we'll live with it. Won't, won't complain too much about it. But uh, I want to continue the church history section because, uh, well, if you let it go too long, people start forgetting what you said the last time. So uh, that's why we are pressing forward uh, with the church history section, even though we'll also be uh, working on concluding over the next couple of weeks in the Sunday morning and Sunday evening services the uh, study of the Holiness Code, uh, God's Law, uh, that we've been doing for quite some time. Hope to be able to wrap those things up uh, fairly uh, fairly quickly. We uh, Last time we were together, we have been reading through, actually if I recall correctly, I read all of the Didache last time. Um, and so we're looking at the Apostolic Fathers. We're not obviously going to be able to look this carefully at all of uh, Christian history because... Uh, the Apostolic Fathers only take up one volume of the 28 uh, in the uh, Hendrickson set, and that's a very limited set in and of itself. Uh, So if we were to try to read all that stuff, we would uh, never actually finish anything, and there would be no reason to do so. But obviously the earliest examples of Christian literature we have is somewhat important to have an idea of. So we've looked at um, Clement of Rome, We have looked at the Didache. Uh, The next we're going to look at is called the Epistle of Barnabas. The Epistle of Barnabas. Uh, I'll be fairly brief with this, but I want to start off by uh, making sure you understand the difference between the Epistle of Barnabas and the Gospel of Barnabas. Now, neither one of them probably has anything to do with Barnabas, the associate of Paul. Uh, We don't know who the author of the Epistle of Barnabas is. Uh, It's an anonymous work, but it's just been, that's what it's been identified with uh, over the past few hundred years since we've had manuscripts of it available to us. But the Epistle of Barnabas dates to around AD 120, uh it's probably from alexandria egypt um it's a it seems to draw from the didache so it's sort of a little bit after that um it, it's it's a moralistic treatise just as the didache was a rather basic it's not a theological work it's more of a moral work and so you could you could easily criticize the Epistle of Barnabas for being somewhat on the shallow side, not really showing a, a in-depth familiarity with a, a fully New Testament understanding uh, of, of things. There are, there, are, we'll see some statements in it that are of, are of interest to us, but um, it, it's it's not the most uh, what I would say beneficial uh, book. It was very popular in certain areas, but we have good reason to believe that it goes back to that early period in the church. What has often happened is that people will confuse the epistle of Barnabas and what's called the gospel of Barnabas. Now, the gospel of Barnabas is, at best, a 13th century, probably later, but we will be generous and say, 13th at the earliest, probably a couple hundred years later than that, but very, very late forgery that is a treasure trove of wild-eyed anachronism. And of course, an anachronism is a, you know, in in a book that pretends to be a historical work from the first century. Uh, If you have all sorts of of elements present in the story that did not exist in uh, in the first century world at all, that's called an anachronism. And I've mentioned it before, but let me mention it again. The Middle Ages, many, many people, even in the elites of society, suffered from what we would call a systemic anachronism. Um, During the medieval period uh, in Europe, there would be entire areas where you would never travel more than seven miles any one direction from where you were born. And so your world was very small. Your educational level was very limited. And many people believed that the world had always been the way that it was now and this explains why you see so many medieval paintings of biblical stories and everyone's dressed like medieval peasants uh in Europe and so David lives in a castle and he looks like a knight and and you would think that well they're just they were just making a statement no they actually thought that you know, as far back as their parents and their grandparents and great grandparents knew this is how life was and Always had been, and and so documents could be forged. Forgery has sadly a lengthy and long history in the history of mankind and in the Christian church as well. And we'll look at some of the more famous of those forgeries that had long-lasting impacts. The nation of Constantine, the Pseudo-Isidorian decretals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But There were periods of time where things that would look to us as so obviously fraudulent, uh, we're looking at it with Western critical eyes, and those Western critical eyes have a history. And so there were books that, from our perspective, people naively um, accepted as authoritative and as genuine that give clear and obvious evidence that they were anything but. Uh, but the worldview behind that, that critically and en- analyzes such things, um, would have existed amongst the Greeks and Romans in the past, but in the medieval period, so much of that classical learning was lost that um, these books ended, having, ended up having an impact. Now, the Gospel of Barnabas, the only people that take it seriously, promote it, uh, make reference to it, uh, think that it's relevant, are Muslims. Because it was plainly written by a former Christian who became some kind of Muslim, even though even the perspective that it presents is not orthodox Islam. So this alleged Gospel of Barnabas... um, has huge armies of hundreds of thousands of people clashing in Palestine. When Palestine was the armpit of the Roman Empire, uh, Titus and Roman legions were the largest army that ever marched through there during that period of time, and, and they were nowhere near a quarter million men or anything like that. So they've got these huge armies, and, and the, the whole teaching of the Gospel of Barnabas is, it identifies Muhammad as the Messiah. The Quran never does that. Islam never does that. Uh, but it has all sorts of prophecies of the coming of Muhammad and, and all the rest of this kind of, uh, of stuff. And it's just so plainly uh, a, a work of wild-eyed fiction that as I said, no one, not even a serious Muslim historian uh, believes that it's actually historical. But many Muslims who aren't historians uh, have run across it in various forms. And so uh, they will promote it and say, well, here's and again, you'll find anything on the internet, and people will believe anything on the internet. Uh, but this will be one of the examples of well, there were hundreds of gospels that didn't get included in the Bible, you know, and they were they were voted on at the Council of Nicaea, and uh, you know, uh, uh, or this one Muslim that put up a, a video about how they put all these gospels in a room at the Council of Nicaea and closed and locked the doors. And when they came back in the morning, uh, only the four canonical Gospels were still on the table, and all the rest had been knocked on the floor. And that's how they decided what the, what the Gospels were, uh, were how the, which, which manuscripts had been knocked on the floor. You know. This kind of stuff. And this was a story made up uh, about 800 years after the Council of Nicaea. There's, there's absolutely no historical evidence. I mean, one thing you better know at the end of this series is that the Council of Nicaea... Uh, oh, Gary's not here, uh, which was in... 80. 80. <laughs> you all are going to be undefeatable in, in uh, the church history category of Jeopardy someday. Um, <laughs> as long as the daily double is the date of the Council of Nicaea, we're all going to do well. Um, the Council of Nicaea had nothing absolutely, positively nothing to do with the canon of Scripture. It wasn't discussed, it didn't come up, there were no decrees, there was no nothing. Uh, and yet, if you embrace internet scholarship, uh, whatever that oxymoron actually uh, indicates, um, that's that's the conclusion you come up with. You could you could Google it right now on your phone. Nicaea plus canon with one N. Uh, and uh, you'd probably come up with Nicaea plus canon with two N's, too, to be perfectly honest with you. But uh, you'll probably find article after article after article uh, talking about how you know, they, they they had the Epistle of Barnabas, the Gospel of Barnabas, but they they rejected it. And uh, this is a very very common belief, and you can understand why if that's what you've been taught by your your, your imam, your mullah, whatever else. Um, you've probably never run across a Christian or ever even heard of it, let alone could give you any discussion of it. And uh, so. Uh, We must distinguish between the Epistle of Barnabas and uh, the Gospel of Barnabas, which is a much, much later fraudulent, uh, anachronistic uh, work of abject silliness. Um, Now, back to the Epistle of Barnabas, uh, we will eventually meet a gentleman uh, in a few weeks by the name of Clement of Alexandria, not Clement of Rome, Clement of Alexandria, And he's a rather important figure, though, one that, to be perfectly honest with you, I can't see a whole lot of positive uh, to say, Uh, but he was a teacher in Alexandria, and he claimed that the author was the same Barnabas who accompanied Paul. Uh, This is extremely unlikely, but it also gives us more reason to think that this was an Alexandrian, uh, primarily Alexandrian work, and was popular in that area, Alexandria, Egypt, of course, uh, con- p- containing one of the largest libraries of the ancient world, which, sadly, we must admit, was eventually destroyed by Christians. Mm. Um, we- the destruction of the library? I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, I'd have to look it up. Uh, so I, I imagine already uh, someone's Googling uh, the destruction of the library. Um The epistle, now one of the things we do need to discuss um, is the development over time of the split between the synagogue and the church and the eventual development of truly anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish doctrines and beliefs within the Christian church. We see in the New Testament the split taking place. We see strong language used by the Apostle Paul of those who were opposing his ministry, of those who were um, seeking to hinder the proclamation of the gospel, and the warning of God's judgment. We see all of those things, and those things are true. You can't talk about those things in New Testament theology anymore, almost anywhere. Uh, What what, what was the date? Uh, It's various yeah. It, it happened many times, so there's oh. a dispute over which time it was really fully destroyed. Oh, okay. Anywhere from the first century BC to the seventh century AD. Well, there was a specific uh, incident, um, I'll, I'll have to look it up, uh, where the prompting of the destruction was from Christian preaching. So, um, the other possibilities are far from Julius Caesar and then another one is as late as the Muslim conquest of Egypt in the 7th century. Yeah, so evidently there are numerous times, but there was there was um, at least great damage done at one point in time due to some monastic influences. Um, you see similar types of things like that happening today when a certain mullah, a certain imam, you know, preaches a sermon on a Friday. If there's violence on a Friday, it probably came after the uh, sermon uh, in the, at the local mosque, and uh, people went running out to, in their zeal to, uh, to do something. So, uh, in 391, Theodosius decreed its destruction. So well, there you go. Uh, well, Theodosius, of course, is the one that, that officially proclaims uh, the Roman Empire to be a Christian empire. So uh, there have been many times, uh, even during the Reformation, where religious zeal has been combined with a uh, attack upon monuments of culture, whether they be libraries, works of art, uh, statues, many a statue has has met its end <laughs> um, after a Sunday sermon, uh, let alone after a Friday kutbah uh, in a in a mosque. It's uh, part of history. It's part of uh, part of the reality. Anyway, uh, Alexander, uh, back to the. Jewish situation. Um, there is a strict line, however, uh, between the biblical teaching of the fact that there has been a hardening of the people of Israel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's not anti-Jewish. That's a recognition of what God has done in his just judgment. And you see Paul is a Jew of the Jews, and, and he would give his life for his people and wish to be separated from Christ, you know, Romans chapter 9. That element of passion for the people of Israel, unfortunately, uh, becomes lost in later generations. And in the epistle of Barnabas, we we find a distinct anti-Jewish polemic, but it it does not partake of the anti-Jewish heresies of the later second century, where people began to reject the authority of the Old Testament, or reduce the authority of the Old Testament to only a matter of allegorical things and and things like that, but it it is a step in that direction. It is sub-biblical, and it's sub-biblical stuff that eventually gives rise to anti-biblical stuff. You don't go straight from biblical to anti-biblical. There's a process, and so you degrade, you lose balance And then that eventually gives rise to that which is directly opposed uh, to to biblical teaching. But we have often been, I think, rightly criticized for not noting uh, the uh, presence of what we would call anti-Semitism, not only in the history of the church, but even in the thoughts and beliefs of men that we have great respect for. Uh, When you realize that part of the Inquisition, part of the Crusades, included tremendous physical persecution of Jewish people. Uh, When you realize that at the Reformation, uh, we had to, there basically was no knowledge of the Hebrew language left amongst Christian people, um, because that was considered the language of the heretics. Even learning Greek was considered dangerous, because that was the language of the heretics, the Eastern Orthodox um the the documents that we can obtain from uh, the papacy in the medieval period uh, giving just absolutely absurd uh, credibility uh, to some of the most wild and insane um, theories of Jews being behind well, everything. if, if a disease broke out, the black plague was due to the Jews, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they were just a scapegoat for blaming everything by many, many people, and even the reformers, uh, especially Luther in his later life. He was in his earlier life. He was again. As we, when we get there, we'll discover the many Martin Luthers. Uh, you, you have to distinguish all the different Luthers, um, and that's why there is no such thing as Lutheranism. Uh, most of modern Lutheranism is actually Melanchthonianism. His, uh successor, Philip Melanchthon. Um, but even if you try to define what Luther taught, are you talking about the Luther from approximately 1516 to 1525, uh, the Luther from 1525 to, to, say, 1535, and then the Luther from 1535 to his death in 1546, um... There's a lot of differences on many, many issues, especially religious liberty. Um, We'll definitely watch uh, a video eventually. Um, There are a couple great church history videos. Some of you have seen them many times before, and some of you have not. Uh, But when you compare watching Martin Luther Heretic, where he's standing for Charles and I can do a no other, here I stand, God help me, and we're all like, oh. And then you watch the the radicals, and Luther and Zwingli are, only a few years later, using the power of the state to murder the Anabaptists. And there's a reason for all that, which we'll get into, um, sacralism, the state church, uh, which has obviously not developed yet in the sense that it would, at the time of the early church, but there is sacralism. Rome is sacral. The The, the, the empire is deeply religious, uh, but it's opposed to the Christian faith at this particular point in time. Um, isn't one big distinction, though, between that Christian anti-Semitism and the 19th and 20th century eugenics and Nazi anti-Semitism, the fact that Christian, at least Luther, um, it it wasn't based on race, but it was based on their faith? Because Luther made it very clear if a Jew converted to Christianity, he was totally fine with them. Right. That's a big distinction, right? Yeah, well, certainly the Nazis were, were, certainly did not have the worldview that would include the doctrinal element of murdering the Messiah and, and things like that, though they freely used Luther's quotes. Uh, unfairly, uh, out of their context, but they, they did use them. And, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely a difference at that point. And, of course, even when we call the, that time period Christian anti-Semitism, when we're talking about the papacy, I'm, I'm, I hope you understand we're using the term now in a very, very, very broad sense and not referring you know, to actual believing Christians who are doing these things, who are actually persecuting all sorts of folks. But... Um, yeah, there's definitely a, a, a difference, a shift in worldview that is taking place post-enlightenment and, and theology and stuff has been separated out from the worldview. There's, there's no, no two ways about that. But the fact remains, you can trace a lengthy, broad stain of ignoring what Romans 9, 10, 11 actually says. Because, you know, yeah, there's been a hardening, but what does chapter 11 say? Don't boast. Uh, against the branches that were cut off so you could be grafted in, or you yourself be cut off. Um, And yet that's exactly what ends up happening. And you can find in in men who said great things, John Chrysostom and others uh, in the early church all the way through to the Reformation, you can find statements that make us uh, blush um, because of their harshness or their inaccuracy or just the fact that this was an area where a tradition developed over time, and it was accepted as a given within the culture over time, and a lot of people did not uh, critically analyze those traditions that were, that were delivered to them. And uh, so the Epistle of Barnabas, a first step, not a radical step, but uh, gives some indication of that, but you don't have the rejection of the Old Testament, um, but what you do have in Barnabas, which is another reason why we see it coming from Alexandria, is an, a sense of allegorical interpretation. And this is going to eventually be codified by the greatest teacher from Alexandria, greatest in the sense of influence. Well, you know, I, I, I'll even back off that. Extremely well-known, uh, Um A man who was outlandishly brilliant and outlandishly wrong about almost everything. That's the best way to describe him. Um, no one's ever read all of Origen's works as of yet. A uh, vast majority have not even translated. Uh, he was followed around by scribes who wrote down basically everything he said. Um, hardly ever slept, which might have something to do with your theology, but I think God sort of designed us to sleep, uh, biblically speaking. But um, And... Was just way off on on numerous things, and yet was demonstrably and inarguably brilliant. One of the only two early church fathers, major early church fathers, that could fluently read both Greek and Hebrew. Uh, extremely important in biblical critical stuff. He he examined manuscripts and everything, but he was he was Lulu when it came came to theology on many. Many issues, and uh, he popularizes, and then has you know has a huge negative impact upon the Christian Church all the way through to the Reformation, the concept of allegorical interpretation. Where, look, it's surface level meaning. That's just that's for the hoy polloi. That's for everybody. If you really want to understand, there's these different levels of meaning to the text. We'll get into that when we talk about origin. But Barnabas gives us that kind of. Uh, Allegorical interpretation of the Old Testament, just not as developed as origin uh, would eventually. Uh, There was one quote I was, I have, if anyone has seen my green early church father's book, I stopped by the office this morning to pick it up and it's missing in action. So I'm, um, unfortunately, a lot of my my notes say read underlined sections. (laughs) It's not here anymore. It reminds me a little bit of a pastor that. Uh, we had when I was a kid, his pastor who baptized me. In fact, uh, in Sharmanstown, Pennsylvania, my parents told me, and I, he's passed on, bless his soul. So I, I, I don't have to worry about saying this. But my parents told me over and over again that uh, he was just this great preacher. And then his family were on vacation one summer, and they had a flat tire, which happened a whole lot more often with the cars back in the 19 late 1960s than it happens today. We all, you all, should be very thankful for, for the tires that we have today. Anyway, um, they had a flat tire, and, and he had to take stuff out of the trunk to get the spare out. Remember how all the, they didn't have donuts and stuff back then? They had real tires, and uh, he left his Bible on top of the car when he got done changing the tire, and they drove off, and he, he forgot to grab it, and it flew off someplace, never to be found again, and they said he never... Preached the same again because that Bible had all his notes. That that was that was his entire library, and um, he never preached the same again. So, see, I don't have my early church. I don't have my apostolic fathers volume, and I'm just left going. So I guess I'm I'm similar to to him. But uh, just one quote here from the Epistle of Barnabas. Um, Understand, therefore, children of joy, that the good Lord revealed everything to us beforehand in order that we might know to whom we ought to give thanks and praise for all things. If, therefore, the Son of God, who is Lord and is destined to judge the living and the dead, suffered in order that his wounds might give us life, let us believe that the Son of God could not suffer except for our sake. Now, why would I mention something like this? Well, I'm pretty certain that the reason I had this particular uh, text marked uh, was because, once again, uh, I deal a lot with uh, the Muslims, and the Muslims in the Quran have a text, Surah 4, 157, which says that Jesus Christ did not die uh, upon a cross, but was uh, raised up to heaven. Someone else died in his place is the most popular theory, uh, the substitution theory. And I have said many times that this places the Quran against every single source that touches upon the subject of the death of Jesus Christ uh, for the first at least hundred years after it took place. And then the, the first sources you get denying this are Gnostic sources. They are sources where uh, you have a theological reason why they do not believe that Jesus could have died on a cross because he didn't have a physical body. If he doesn't have a physical body, you can't, you can't nail a, a phantasm A spirit to a cross. Um, And so it was their rejection of fundamental Christian and even Jewish beliefs about the world that led these second century Gnostics to a rejection of of the cross. And it has nothing to do with history. It's not anybody saying, well, we know this never really happened. It was uh, for other other reasons. And so there you have a brief uh, discussion of the epistle of Barnabas, and with that we will begin, anyways, uh, a shift over uh, to what to me is a much more important uh, early church father, and one that I will read sections from that is very, very important, and that is Ignatius of Antioch. Now, there are two really famous Ignatiuses in church history. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch dies around 107 or 108 A.D. He is martyred. Um, Who is the other Ignatius? Ooh, he stopped and asked us a question. I need to look back down at my phone and look like I am very, very busy looking something up or posting on Facebook. Never heard of any other Ignatius? Sure, you have. Yeah. There's something. There's something. There's what was that? Loyola? Ignatius Loyola. That's right. You've heard all sorts of uh, colleges named, uh, uh, yeah, Loyola, uh, Loyola Marymount, et cetera, et cetera. Who was uh, Igna- Ignatius Loyola? Founder of the Jesuits. Founder of the Jesuits. That's exactly right. And so he is a anti-Reformation figure in the 16th century. And uh, what, what percentage do you think? If we, were to, if we were to somehow find a way to pull all the people coming out of Ostensibly evangelical churches in the United States this morning. What percentage do you think could identify the difference between Ignatius and Ignatius Loyola and put them within 300 years of when they actually lived? Tiny, tiny percentage. Tiny, tiny percentage. Yeah, very, very small. Very, very small. Uh, pretty much, uh, pretty much. Um, but we are fixing that. That is, that is, that's, we are fixing that. Ignatius is, I think, of the apostolic fathers, uh, by far the most important. We have, well, first of all, he was the bishop of Antioch, and Antioch has a, a long biblical history. It, it, it was given quite the foundation Uh, amongst the apostles, and is very, very important. He is a martyr. He's martyred under Trajan, the emperor Trajan. Um, He was condemned to death by the Roman authorities, and while traveling to Rome, he stopped twice and wrote a total of seven letters. Now, once again, we are introduced here to the later... Phenomenon of using a famous early writer's name to produce literature that has greater authority than if you put your own name on it. And so there are more than seven letters with Ignatius' name on them. But the other ones are pseudo-Ignatian epistles written by anonymous people in the hundreds of years after the time of Ignatius. And most of the time, they give themselves away through various anachronisms, uh, saying things that would Ignatius himself could never have said because such and such a thing was not a belief at the time, whatever else it might be. But uh, what's really interesting is that back in 19, I think it was 95 or 96, somewhere around in there, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society put out a series of articles in the Watchtower where they attempted to go through the early church writers and paint them all as Jehovah's Witnesses. And this is not uncommon. Uh, The the Mormons will do it. Well, the Muslims will do it. The Muslims try to make the Ebionites uh, this group of Jewish, quote-unquote, Christians. Uh, they, they try to make them the real Christians, and Paul pervert, everything. Everybody wants to try to turn these folks into something other than what they were. And I hope one thing that we do is that we don't try to turn the apostolic fathers into, into people they weren't, or the early church fathers into people they weren't. You recognize the good, you recognize the bad, and you take them for what they were, rather than trying to, uh, the silliest thing we could ever do would be to try to turn all these guys into ancient Reformed Baptists, because they weren't, Um, and we don't need them to be, and if you think that we need that, well, then there is a little book you could read called uh, The Trail of Blood, which would be right down your alley, but it's really bad history. Anyway, um, there are landmark Baptists, by the way, The the Trail of Blood is one of their favorite books, and... I was I was introduced to that in high school, and, and it's like, oh wow, we are the original Christians and apostolic authority and the whole apostolic succession, the holy yards, and and it's like uh, then I took church history and went, oops, <laughs> glad I didn't mention that in class. Um, anyway, uh, so there's a, there's this other stuff out there, and what the what the um, Watchtower Society did is their entire article on Ignatius was based on pseudo Ignatian epistles. They never quoted the genuine Ignatius. They only quoted uh, epistles attributed to him, which have been rejected by scholarship. And the reason for this is fairly simple. Um, He wrote a total of seven letters to the Smyrnians, uh, to Polycarp, so an individual, Bishop Polycarp, to the Ephesians, Magnesians, the Philadelphians, the Trollians, and the Romans. And at the most, minimally... Ten times in those seven epistles, maximally 14 times. So, obviously, some of it's interpretational. Ten to 14 times, depending on how you interpret some of the texts, Ignatius refers to Jesus as God. He plainly, clearly, unequivocally refers to the deity of Christ. So, what are you supposed to do with Ignatius if you're writing for the Watchtower Society? and you believe Jesus is Michael the archangel. Well, um, here is a tremendous example of religious deception on the part of the society. Quote the pseudo-Ignatian epistles. Not where, and even in those, there's not going to be a denial of the deity of Christ. It's just that you can find stuff that... Isn't as high in its view of Christ and pretend that that actually represents the true Ignatius. And as long as you can control your people, as long as, as, you know, and especially back in those days, you know, the internet has made it tough on the witnesses. Really. Cable TV and the internet has changed the Watchtower side. Someone could do a fascinating doctoral dissertation, I'm sure, on the control mechanisms and the evolutionary control mechanisms in tightly controlled cults by looking at the Watchtower Society in 1980 versus the Watchtower Society in 2010. That's a nice, even number. So what happened in those 30 years? Uh, The advent of cable television and the Internet. Personal computers. Personal computers. the, the, The digital age arrived. And the tight... Narrow control that the society functioned under in 1980. Controlled what you could watch, what you could read, everything. They just simply couldn't keep doing it. And there's information that they could just simply ignore. They didn't have to deal with their own history. They didn't have to deal with prophecies they had once made. They didn't have to deal with... you know, They could change... They had their own books, and they published all their own books. And after the the, the debacle in 1974, 1975, prophecy... They went back and changed their books to remove the prophecies that were in them. That's how much they could control their people. But once they're digitally connected, you can't do that anymore. They're going to be running into this information, and so you've got to change how you do stuff. And uh, it, it, it would, really would be a fascinating project uh, to look at what has been the result of that in, in the past 30 years. But they could get away with it back then, Because they would expect that their readers are going to believe whatever they're told. And they're not going to go to the library. They're not going to look up Ignatius. They're not going to run into his genuine epistles. Um, And so they can simply deceive. And it it is deception. And it's purposeful. We know it's purposeful. Because the very sources that they would quote of the pseudo-Ignatian epistles we can look at those sources and they identify them as the pseudo-ignation epistles. And in the very same book are the real epistles with the real references to the deity of Christ and the whole nine yards right there. And we also know because of a book that came out, I forgot the year now, called Crisis of Conscience, um, one of the former governing body members of Jehovah's Witnesses uh, left the Jehovah's Witnesses. And he had been involved in doing writing uh, for the governing body and he even tells a story about how the uh the witnesses remember the 1914 prophecy they they uh, they were big on 1914 for a long long time they they're phasing it out they're getting smart though they're doing it very slowly <laughs> instead of just you wake up one morning and everything's changed uh they're doing it very very slowly but that a prophecy based on Daniel well aren't all date prophecies based on Daniel somewhere. Um, but uh, they, they had this prophecy where 2,520 years after the fall of Jerusalem would be when Christ returns. And to make that fit for 1914, Jerusalem had to fall in 607 uh, B.C. B- they say B.C.E. They use the common era stuff. Well, there's one little problem. Every single work on history written by anyone of any religion says that Jerusalem fell in Nebuchadnezzar in 586, 587. Now, why would there be a 586-587? Because they don't, not everybody measured years January to December. Um, so Jerusalem fell to Nebuchadnezzar in 586, not 607. So this guy, Raymond Franz is his name, by the way. Um, this guy, and you can still go back, I still have the books, the unexpurgated ones in my library, because they can't get to my library. <laughs> they can get to theirs, they can't get to mine. Um, wrote an ent- entire articles doing nothing but attacking all of the evidence for 586 without ever establishing 607. But that's what they produced for their people. And we're talking, we're talking there are literally thousands of cuneiform tablets in libraries around the world with with clear dates on them. I mean, there is a clear dating of the succession of Babylonian kings and the whole nine yards. uh, The the books are extremely boring to read, but they're they're very, very, very detailed. We know when Nebuchadnezzar lived. We know when he took Jerusalem. I mean, it's, it's as documented as any ancient date can be documented. And yet, for years, the Watchtower Society said 607, 607, 607. Now they don't talk about it anymore. And eventually, they'll probably publish something that says 586 and get in line with everybody else because they will have dumped the 1914 prophecy, and so it won't be relevant anymore. Uh, But this is the kind of stuff, it's out there. Uh, It it happens. And these cults are willing to change history and alter alter the facts and alter the quotations, alter the sources... Uh, But even, quote-unquote, Christians did that. Um, As we will see in the medieval period, the greatest period of development in the concept of the papacy took place during a period of time where the most popular sources of quotations from the early church fathers were filled, filled with pure, bogus citations. And the papacy, literally, when you look at, for example, I think someone looked at Thomas Aquinas' discussion of the papacy, 98% of his patristic citations are fraudulent. Not because he made them up. The sources that he thought were true had made them up. And so in reality, when you think about it, the papacy as an institution historically hangs in midair. Its entire foundation that developed in the early church and all the rest of that stuff has been washed away the quotes never existed. The early writers didn't believe the things they, that they later thought they did. And yet you still got the papacy hanging there literally in historical midair. Uh, nothing, nothing underneath it. But it's still there. And the zealous Roman Catholics is, ah, oh, it's the church of 2,000 years. No, actually, it, it isn't. But. So, seven epistles. Uh, we will look at what... We're not going to read all seven epistles, but there are some incredible statements, especially of Christology, in those epistles. But the one last thing I'll say is, he went to Rome and he asked all the people on the way, do not attempt to stop this from happening. I desire martyrdom. And so that's one of the issues that we'll talk about is uh, the early church and the subject of martyrdom and uh, some of the imbalances uh, that took place uh, there as well. Okay, So we'll get to Ignatius next week. All right, let's close the word. Father, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity and freedom we have to consider uh, the history of your working with your people. We ask that we would be guided by this. You'd be with us now as we go into worship, as we open your word. May you be honored and glorified in all that takes place. We pray in Christ's name.